Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. It's an addendum to episode 29 of the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Marcus uh, and Ray here, and episode 29 was about Robert Johnson and the progenitors of the blues. And we started going on a little while, and we realized we ought to stop up and just do an addendum to it because it would be more listenable as far as time and everything for everybody. Absolutely. I mean, we got onto a roll, and we could have easily, easily gone on for another 30, 40 minutes easily just yeah. about the progenitors of the blues yeah and that's why we thought we'd take a little break and come back and bring you this kind of pocket podcast mm-hmm. uh brought to you by crooked eye brewing in the heart of hapro stop by and get the cure for what ails you since 2014 they've got some great stuff on the board stop by and make it crooked eye um, we are on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and we thank them for their support. It's really helped us to reach so many more people. Uh, tell people, Marcus, where they can reach out and uh, touch us, so to speak. They can touch us on Twitter, Imbalance Histo. Please give, give us, us the, the ROI. ROI. Twitter, come on. We want that they ROI. Want they can't. I don't know why. Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll on Facebook. Our website is imbalancedhistory.com, and you can email us, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. Well, we had talked about Robert Johnson, and we talked about uh, his death and his association with Sonny Boy Williamson, who he looked up to, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about uh, uh, Sun House and all these different people who came into play. Uh, we didn't we didn't really get in, that much into Sun House and, and his influence on things. Um, he made a huge influence through the years on young blues players who are the ones who started to put the blues on the radar who we were talking about. Yep. Oh, I'm going to change my way of living. So I want to try no more. I tried last night. I seen all the night before. I said, I change my way of living. So I want to try no more. Christian song by request. Maybe some Bible readers in the audience. The Bible's a good book to read. Who's that writing? John the Revelator. Tell me who's that writing? John the Revelator. Tell me who's that writing? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seas. Who's that writing? We talked about a number of players in the blues who were blind. 
And before we get to a couple more of those and some other artists, I want to talk to you about two guys whose names were combined by a young psychedelic band from England in the 60s. All right, and who would that psychedelic band from the 60s be? Pink Floyd. You didn't know what? that you didn't no. know that they took their name yeah. from Bluesmen? I did. Did you know that it was Pink Anderson and Floyd Council they took their first names? That's um, amazing. It was Sid Barrett, actually, who uh, came up with the name. Of course, Sid was pretty out there before the LSD kicked in. They were both bluesmen in the Carolinas. Pink Anderson, Pinkney Anderson, uh, was born in 1900. Floyd Council was born 11 years later. So it's funny that, you know, Sid would pull their names together. Pink was uh, part of uh, what they call the, the South Carolina country blues. I got a woman. Way across town, she's good to me. Oh, yeah, she's good to me. Oh, uh, he did a shared album with Reverend Gary Davis, the American Street Songs, in 1950. He was part of the William R. Kerr, Dr. William R. Kerr Indian Remedy Company. Uh, he started uh, traveling and entertaining the crowds while Dr. Kerr tried to sell them uh, concoctions with medicinal qualities. I guess some of them had medicinal qualities, coca, and some didn't, Cannabis. snake oil. Interesting. And that was part of the life back then. If you wanted to be a traveling bluesman, if you could get in with one of these traveling uh, minstrel or medicine shows or carnivals, it was uh, a good way to make a living as a musician. Now, the other fellow, Floyd, the Floyd in the uh, equation, Floyd Council, also an American blues guitarist. He also played mandolin, and he was known as a singer, a.k.a. Dipper Boy Council. Dipper Boy Council. Council. Now, he was born in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where the University of North Carolina is. His folks were Harry and Lizzie Council, and he began his musical career on the streets of Chapel Hill in the 20s, uh, performing with two brothers, Leo and Thomas Stroud as the Chapel Hillbillies. Get it? The Chapel, Chapel Hill Billies. Billies. Uh, in the late 1920s and early 30s, he and Blind Boy Fuller actually bust in the streets of Chapel Hill, and he recorded twice for ARC, a label that we've talked about before, with Fuller in the mid-1930s, uh, all what you would consider to be Piedmont blue style. But that's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's completely crazy. That these two guys uh, are joined by this rock legend that came later and yet there they were you know in the same kind of time frame in the in the 19 teens about 100 years ago playing in north and south carolina and tied forever together by uh, sid barrett and pink floyd that's just crazy to think about and now now council worked with blind boy fuller right so that brings him into play blind boy fuller uh again uh from north carolina uh, one of ten kids raised in the Piedmont, where the, that form of blues was, uh, you know, kind of forged. His birth name was Fulton Allen, born in around 1901, 2, 3, 4, or maybe 7. 
and uh, or maybe 1898. Uh, but he played the blues and sang, and he was uh, one of the more popular recorded Piedmont blues artists. Well, I'm going uptown, having my hand, looking for the woman ain't got no man. This is where we looking for a needle in the sand, looking for a woman ain't got no man. Oh, Ray, 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 said do that, Ray. He was also associated with Blind Blake and Josh White and Buddy Moss. So when he's a kid, he starts to have trouble seeing, and he starts losing his sight. And uh, doctors tell him that there's damage done behind his eyes. He had ulcers back there. Uh, the original damage probably caused by some form of snow blindness. Wait, in North Carolina? Oh, yeah, there's snow. snow. Yeah. And yeah, I guess in the hills. Maybe. Yeah, definitely yeah, the in the Apple- mountains. Oh, absolutely. Whoa. But you had snowstorm-inducing myocardia in another story. Yeah. Right in Chicago in Blind Lemon Jefferson and here snow blindness causing actual blindness, which I'd never heard of. Basically, they did an eye exam later in life and they determined that his uh, loss of vision was due to untreated neonatal conjunctivitis. By the time uh, 1928 rolls around, he's completely blind. And of course, uh, like you mentioned, uh, Singer was a primary form of possible employment for a blind man in the South in those days, specifically an African-American blind man. And he studied the music of Blind Blake and Gary Davis and started to learn to play and really put himself into all that and did some performances that were, uh, again, on ARC and DECA. It's one of those things. He also made his first recording in 1937 with Sonny Terry, a name that will be part of the next phase of the blues in a big way, his partnership with Brownie McGee. Wow. You got to give me some of it. You got to give me some of it. Boy, you give it all away. But he said he had a fiery temper. Oh, yeah. It was him, Blind Boy Fuller, who went to jail for shooting a pistol at his wife, hitting her in the leg. He only wounded her, but oh. they put him in jail. Um, Rightly so. When he died, uh, Brownie McGee, who would work with Sonny Terry's, they were famously joined at the hip. Recorded the death of Blind Boy Fuller for OK Records. And um, he actually took on the mantle of Blind Boy Fuller for a short time uh, before realizing that that wasn't going to work out. He's gone. Blind Boy Fuller's gone away. He's gone. Blind Boy Fuller's gone away. He went on, to, of course, yeah, but he went on to have a great career. Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, one of the great duos in blues. Um, this is an addendum to the imbalance history of rock and roll. Our uh, 29th episode, Robert Johnson and the Progenitors of the Blues, uh, was running a bit long. So we thought we'd do a pocket podcast for you mm-hmm. and cover uh, a few more names that we feel are important when we start to think about the early days of the blues. And we've been enjoying this. And we're going to come back with a couple more right after this on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And as always, the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is sponsored by our friends at Crooked Eye Brewing, located at 13 East Montgomery Avenue in Hatboro. 
Great brews, great people, and fun times. Next time you want a True Craft Brewery experience, stop by for a pint and make it Crooked Eye. And look, there's more to the fun at Crooked Eye than just the brews, although they are stellar. You check out their website, crookedeyebrewery.com. You see the full list of music events and fun scheduled for each month. So check them out at crookedeyebrewery.com or on Facebook. So you can stop in, meet Paul and Paul, the brothers-in-law who started Crooked Eye Brewing in their kitchen. Yeah. I mean, meet the Crooked Eye crew who make it fun every night, and yep. you know you're going to make some new friends, too. And you get to meet Jeff Mulherin. He's there a lot. He's the master brewer, and uh, he is working on some really cool stuff. Their tasty brews include the trademark Crooked IPA, which is back and tasting better than ever, right there at their expanded brewing facility in Hapro. That's where they make it all. You will feel like family the moment you walk through the door. Serving nightly in the heart of Hatboro, Crooked Eye has the cure for what ails you since 2014. Hey, Marcus, can I talk to you about Gary Davis? Of course you can talk to me about Gary Davis. About Blind Gary Davis? About yes. the Reverend Blind Gary Davis? The, the Reverend Blind Gary Davis? Well, he yes. did the blues, he sang the gospel, and especially he started taking on a gospel tone when he converted to big-time uh, uh, Christianity. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Devil's music and a reverend. I know. Well, you know, we didn't really talk that much about it because we had so much ground to cover on the episode. The whole label of devil's music is something that people who don't understand something put on something that they think could cause change that they can't do with their own fears and their own adherence to religious, not even the dogma. The dogma doesn't even come into play. It's all the extraneous parts that people add to their religion that, that makes them fear things like the blues or rock and roll or, I don't know, change. And the music made people feel good. It made them dance. It made them move. It made them behave in a real natural way. And it women, was, women were moving below the waist in a sultry, everybody sexy way. Everybody was moving they, that way. They were denying, these are people who are trying to deny their own natural carnal nature in the name of religion and adherence to what I don't know. But all I know is that they started labeling it that way, the same way they labeled marijuana, the the same, same way they've labeled anything else throughout the decades, throughout the centuries, that they don't know or don't understand. They label it as evil and the devil and bad and I, for one, thought that by this point in the 21st century that, you know, we'd be able to let be more laughing about looking back at this era and going, see how far back that was. But so much uh, in the world continues to repeat patterns that are alarming at times. Alarming. And what we're seeing now is a lot of the same sentiments of ignorance that called rock and roll or the blues, the devil's music, rearing their ugly head. And all I could tell you is Gary Davis put them all on notice. Because he was all about what he was doing, and he had a wide influence. He was in South Carolina, grew up there, one of eight kids. But he was the only one of his mother's eight who survived to be an adult. I wonder if that had some kind of an influence on him. He he was blind as an infant, and um, he wasn't didn't remember being treated particularly well by his folks. But his paternal grandmother was was a kind soul. He was ten years old when his father died, and he was his father wasn't there. His father was in Alabama when it happened. Word was that his dad had been shot by the Birmingham sheriff over something. Who knows what had happened? 
You know, we talked about the South in those days. You know, I woke up this morning, you know, just about a half past four. There's a tape blues was knocking on my door. Tell me how long. You have to wait. Can I get you now, baby? You have to take. But he sang at church, but I... I, that's one. Of, they say the first time he sang was at church, but I got a funny feeling that along the way he drifted away from the church of his upbringing because later he goes back to the church in full force and becomes a minister, becomes a Baptist minister, and he does a lot more inspirational and gospel music. And yet when people from the 60s, quote unquote, you know, and I'm talking about people like David Bromberg and um, uh, Dave Van Ronk, Rory Block, uh, Bob Weir, uh, Dylan, Mm -hmm. influences on them and him and the dead and and all the music that Yorma was involved in, right? Especially Hot Tuna. Gary Davis's music, both his religious, his gospel, and his secular music, had a huge influence on people because of his perspective. I mean, maybe being uh, the only one of your mother's children to live to adulthood and being blind, mm-hmm. there's a, maybe there's a story in that. There, there are a lot of stories in that, I'm sure. And and he took, you know, uh, Blind Boy Fuller under his mm-hmm. under his wing, and and he did his share of recordings. Uh, lived in the. Uh, uh, Durham, North Carolina area. Raleigh, Durham. Yeah. The Tri-City area. And he kind of gave it all up to the higher power and Mm -hmm. figuring he's already had a a great life and was just about to settle into all that. And the blues scene started to go down. He had his niche there and then the blues scene started to go down. So he decided to move to New York, which I think surprised people at the time. He recorded an oral history, I guess, of himself for um, Alan Lomax's wife. Alan was the son of John Lomax, and they transcribed their, their conversation, turned it into like 300 pages of book, and preserved it. Obviously, they did a lot of preserving in the Lomax uh, extended family. But then in the folk revival, he was one of the guys, unlike Fuller, he was one of the guys who was around to enjoy that. Uh, he performed at Newport. Uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary recorded his take on Samson and Delilah. Oh, wow. Um, I've heard their version of that, not knowing where that came from. And uh, the Dead also did a version of Samson and Delilah on their uh, Terrapin theirs. station. I've heard that version, too. Sure. Well, think about it. There's Terrapin. Coming into play, Terraplane. You yeah. see the connections to mm. this, to the, the the little connective threads there. Yeah. The Dead also uh, covered uh, "Death Have No Mercy." There's so many people who played his music and was influenced by his music. He's in the Blues Hall of Fame, and he should be. And he's revered still today. And ironically, I never knew this. I used to live probably. 10 minutes from where he died in 1972, he had a heart attack in Hamilton, New Jersey. Oh, my goodness. And he's buried in uh, Rockville Cemetery in Lindbrook, Long Island, New York, the Reverend Gary Davis. Can you believe that? I was like just down the road from where I was not living then. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> wow. Now, we've delved into the Texas blues, the Delta blues, the city blues, and the Carolina blues. Right. And it's interesting to hear how different all of them are as you have the cleaner sound of the Texas blues versus the muddy, really heartbreaking sound of the uh, Delta blues. And then you have the Chicago sound, which is really an urban blues. And then you have the hillbilly blues of the Carolinas, which is showing you... They call it the Piedmont. Yeah, the Piedmont blues or the Guller, whatever it's going to be called. Well, Guller's down by the coast. Down by Georgia. Low country blues are different than Piedmont. But but it's... No, but it's 
interesting because you see a lot more mixing of the black and white culture in the Appalachians to have that hillbilly, rockabilly, ragtime type of influence in that blues sound there. Very good observation, my friend. So it's just it's really interesting because in Mississippi the whites and the blacks did not mingle. No. Musically especially, no. no. So so it's really fascinating. But uh But a different setting different social interactions different setting yeah. uh, there in the carolinas maybe part of it yeah um well, the poor and the appalachians were all poor together there was a whole thing in tennessee too around the blues you had the the memphis blues a lot of it was country blues became electrified later yeah. uh so there's a whole thing in tennessee too including that's the birthplace of a man named john adam estes uh, again around 1899 or 1900 he was born and he, he passed away in 1977 the family moved to tennessee and uh, shortly after that he lost the sight in his right eye when a friend threw a rock at him he started playing professionally and i guess he had that a look to him so they started calling him sleepy john no he had the sleepy eye because the eye from getting hit in the eye with the yeah. rock and he played a lot like a lot of guys at parties and picnics uh he was playing with his buddy hammy nixon who would play with him through the years yank rachel was there uh playing what a great name yank rachel what a and hammy name. nixon these hammy are nixon. great blues names. seriously these the blues musicians have the best names ever now drop down baby let your I know just what you're trying to put on me Well, my mouth, she don't love me he also performed uh, on the uh, Dr. Newburn Medicine Show circuit. Really? Who performed on that. The funny thing about the, uh, the nickname, though, Sleepy, was that it, they said, you know, we didn't know medicine like we do today. Uh, they thought he might have had a blood pressure problem or a slight narcolepsy he always seemed to be like sleepy in the seven dwarfs i guess you know oh, wow he said that he, he was one of those people that could withdraw f- from his surroundings in, with a, a, a drowsiness whenever life was too cruel or too boring to warrant full attention that's from uh, bob coaster uh, the founder of delmark records uh he himself said the nickname was born of his exhausting life because he was a musician and a farmer he'd said every night i was going somewhere i'd work all day play all night and get back home about sunrise i get the mule and get right on going you never sleep. that'll make you sleepy yeah that's kind of where the whole sleepy john came from that's pretty cool he tried recording uh, a guy named Jim Jackson um, was uh, an Amer- African-American blues singer. They, he sang the style called hokum, played guitar, and he had some recordings that were popular uh, in the 20s. And so he got him to do it, and he made his debut as a recording artist in Memphis in 1929. Uh, Ralph Peer put it together for Victor Records. He recorded Drop Down Mama and Someday Baby Blues in 1935. So that he didn't have that many sessions. He all later recorded for Decca and Bluebird, uh, which Bluebird is a famous label in the oh, 50s yeah. New Orleans and stuff. Uh, his last pre-war recordings took place in 1941, and he he was at Sun Studio in 1952 doing a couple sessions, running around and rats in my kitchen. But pretty much was out of the public eye in the 40s and 50s. But he was tracked down by Bob Coaster again and Samuel Charters, 
1962, he was completely blind and living in poverty. Again, the blind man living in poverty and, and gets a chance to perform and record again because he made an appearance at the Newport Folk Festival in 1964. Awesome. The story of Sleepy John Estes. There's a lot of Newport. There's a lot of blue, uh, American folk revival, which helped to spark the American blues revival. Yeah, it did. Uh, a lot of that. And there's a lot in this addendum and in the episode, episode 29, about John and Alan Lomax and Alan's wife. And uh, there is one story I forgot to mention. It was about Robert Johnson. Uh, we mentioned that Robert Johnson died at age 27, thereby yes. the founding member of the 27 Club. Mm-hmm. In 1938, he died of uh, poisoning. We mark it as a revenge poisoning. Yep. And um, John Hammond, who signed Dylan and signed Springsteen, actually went down to Mississippi to find Robert Johnson for the purpose of recording him based on what he had already heard in 1938, only to find that he had passed away. It was like six months later he was there or something he, like he that. Couldn't, he couldn't find any trace of what had happened and finally ran into the right people and got the story and people told him about it. Fast forward another couple years and Alan Lomax, based on the legend that was developing out of the Delta from the Columbia sides and what have you, he went down to find Robert Johnson because he was going to help record more of his music. And again, took a while, but he found out that he had died. But he was down there a couple years later, and the word didn't get around as well as it does now. And I thought that was an interesting story to to kind of wrap things up on the episode about Robert Johnson and the progenitors of the blues. And was Robert John? Did he did he end up playing Robert Johnson's music on record for crowd? We're telling me yeah. about that. I think he did after that, since he couldn't find uh, Robert Johnson to come up to New York. He played a record of his, like set up on a, a sound stage. System. Yeah, just sent up just sent up a turntable on a stage like a Victrola. With, with a mic and a speaker right and let the crowd hear it and i think it, it blew the crowd away because I, I it was think, so different i think that that happened to a lot of people when it came to robert johnson and not to mention a lot all that big stack of of sheets of our research yeah a lot of the music of those men and women also as well as robert johnson johnson is the most famous of all these people perhaps today but in their time they were all robert johnson's I think. Yes, they were. And I would be willing to bet money that if the right research is done, we can find more of their recordings, find more of their stories, and find more information. But Sounds like a podcast project to it's me. It's going to be pure luck if you get that break. That's true. It's going to be one of those pure, like, the uh, the spirits from the other side have intervened or something like that. This is the addendum to episode 29, Robert Johnson and the Progenitors of the Blues. We're kind of like, it's like a coda in a song. We're kind of tacking on the last few here. But it gives us a chance to talk about the next step when we dig in further on the next step of the blues. Because some of the names are already starting to appear in this episode that will be the story of the blues in the 40s and 50s and beyond, the Elmore Jameses, the Muddy Waters, and Otis Spann, and all the people that played with on records for some of these guys. And it's just amazing that the way that the blues is all connected and that each generation from the 1890s and early 1900s to the 1920s and beyond, that all the generations are connected and that yours always seems to be that young hot gun making their way 
into the middle of it all. I think it will be fun to like break down some of the areas, like do an episode on the Texas blues, yeah. one that goes more into the urban blues of Chicago, one that goes into like the Carolina blues, one that goes into the Gullah blues, and then you have, of course, have the New Orleans scene. And you know what else which, you have? That it wasn't a part of anything in the, at this time when we're ta- that we're talking about now. The California blues come what? into play. It's a permutation. I will definitely like so, to learn more about that. So that's uh, our first big dip into the blues. We talk about the blues all the time because it's so much a part of the fabric of rock and roll and yeah. our imbalanced history. I, I've been digging it, man. Thanks Me for too. the idea of doing the addendum because I think you that bet. was the best thing for everybody. Now you get a little bit more about that. Yep. And we'll come back, as we always do, with some other crazy imbalanced idea to keep you entertained here uh, on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Uh, just about time to go. Oh, thanks to Crooked Eye Brewery in Hapro, the uh, cure for what ails you since 2014. Always some tasty brews on tap there. want to thank Rick DeFonso for the music he provides every week to the show. Check out his new album at rickdefonso.com. And then it's time for us to go. Signing off from the Magic Bag Studios of Dark Doc Media, I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we'll catch you next time on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Hey, this is Joe. And Ryan. From the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast. The history of rock music is littered with forgotten weirdos, eccentrics, and scoundrels. Highway Hi-Fi is an examination of the lesser-known but equally vital aspects of music over the past hundred years or so through its most enduring medium, the vinyl record. We cover records that were made for plants. Truck-driving country songs. The mafia's ties to record bootlegging. The ill-fated turntables for cars. The Mexican Woodstock. Waffle House's record label. The murderous true crime roots of Stagger Lee. Leonard Nimoy's highly illogical folk albums. The flammability of the Butthole Surfers live shows. Cereal box flexi disc. The strange byproducts of the American private press trend. And so much more. Using trivia, deep dives into history and context, interviews and curios from our record collections, We go track by track through the underbelly of music history to locate the roots of the world's fascination with vinyl records. Check out Highway Hi-Fi on all reputable podcatchers. We're a proud member of the Pantheon Music Podcast Network.